0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. The psalm is interesting. The second is, as with the whole of the scriptures, it always amazes me how the scriptures really try to address the felt questions that we're grappling with even today. And this psalm addresses a question which touches many people today in our culture, um, but it was written 3,000 years ago. And it, uh, it demonstrates the relevance as well as the truth claims uh, of the gospel. Let me explain the context. I don't know if you've ever felt disappointed or perplexed by God. Uh, many believers do, however strong they are. Sometimes they experience Uh, the vicissitudes of life, and it's a puzzle to try to understand uh, where God's hand is behind the circumstances they're experiencing. You've just uh, mentioned the loss uh, of an elder in the last week, and in the pastoral prayer, we prayed about people who may be depressed or discouraged or have long-term illness And it may be that some of us here are discouraged because we've been passed over for promotion in work, or discouraged by marriage or the lack of it. It never happened, or there are tensions in the marriage, or there are difficulties in the family, or bereavement, or the loss of a child. 25 years ago, my only daughter died. This is not uncommon in the history of the church, in the lives of believers, because living in a fallen world, we experience these things just as unbelievers do. It may be that we have health problems, sickness, depression, we just uh, prayed about, or even unanswered prayer. Well, sometimes this causes turmoil, especially if we're up and downers emotionally. I had a mother who was like that, never depressed in 40 years, my father said. But my father was a typical Welshman. A good day was if he was only depressed twice a day. He, uh, he had Himalayan emotions, shall we say. Some of us may be like that. It's nothing to do with our spiritual maturity. Sometimes it's just that we're born with those kind of characteristics. So it may be that we're disappointed or struggling because of adversity or difficulties that come our way. Um, I remember well after our our daughter died, I mentioned uh, earlier, somebody coming up to us in a conference from another country and saying to my wife, "There, there must be something spiritually wrong with you. You obviously didn't pray hard enough. Because if you did, your daughter would have been healed. My wife, who is very biblically literate and theologically aware, quick as a flash responded, you clearly haven't read Hebrews chapter 11. Because at the the end of the chapter, it says how some people were sawn in two, and others were raised from the dead in the same verse. So the mark, she said, of great faith is not deliverance from difficulty. It's fidelity in the midst of it. I never forgot her answer and was so glad that I had a wife like that to show me up because I'm not sure I could have answered so readily and swiftly in the same way. Anyway, albeit some of us are prone to these kind of things and it would be astonishing if in this congregation many of the things I've just mentioned had not come the way of individual members uh, here in the church. Now, it doesn't say that Asaph was having these experiences in his life, but clearly what, what he was grappling with, and if this comes your way, it really adds an extra layer to the uncertainty and the difficulty and the turmoil of someone who happens to be going through a period of disappointment or perplexing or difficulty. His big struggle was watching the struggles of the believers and seeing that the arrogant or the proud were seemingly untouched. And in a sense, he was asking the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And why, if there's a God who is there, does he allow the wicked, apparently, for lengthy periods of time to go about their business untouched? Now, some years ago, there was a cult book written about this by a very liberal Jewish rabbi in North America called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. used to see it in the bookshops in airports all over there. His name was Rabbi Kushner. And in answer to this question, why do bad things happen to good people, he said, well, I believe God does exist and he's a God of justice and compassion, but he argued he's not a God of power. He's a weak God and that's why these bad things happen. And it caught the attention of many people and undermined uh, the faith of many believers uh, who read it. Well, this is the kind of context in which Asaph is writing, believers are troubled, but he sees the progress of the wicked and the arrogant. So let's look at the psalm, and we read as he summarizes the problem that he faced that dominated his thinking through much of his life. Right at the end of his life, clearly, he writes these words in verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he's come to a settled conclusion, an answer to the problem. He's answered it, resolved it by the end of his life. But then he goes back and recounts what the issue was. But, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold, because I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no health problems. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong, verse 4. They're free from the burdens common to man, verse 5, or stresses if you like. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace. They close themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff Uh, and speak with malice at God and at his people, presumably. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression, their their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters of abundance. Then they say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. They're always carefree. They increase in wealth. And then he says a devastating statement, which sometimes is the portion of some faithful believers they ask surely in vain have i kept my heart pure in vain have i washed my hands in innocence this is for believers who are hanging on by their fingertips as it were all day long i've been plagued i've been punished every morning if i'd said thus if i'd said i will speak thus i would have betrayed your children when i tried to understand all this it was oppressive to me so this is the halfway point in the psalm, and he's highlighting the fact that this wasn't just a passing phase or reflection, but this is something by observation that he had been grappling with and had dominated his thinking. And it's easy for us to think like that also in our cultural context. Even seven or eight years ago, with the big crash of the economy, you just have to look at some of the investment bankers who were retired off with millions of pounds of uh, Savings in their pension funds over against some of their poor souls, and sometimes in our congregations, who live on a pittance. Or I think of the time when uh, in Wales uh, there was someone I knew who was a butcher, and he was supplying food for the schools in the area. Thousands of children, and he tried to take shortcuts, and he cut the meat on machines that he shouldn't have, and uh, problems occurred in the school's. And uh, some children died and many were uh, afflicted and it will affect them for the rest of their lives. And this man was brought to trial. I know him well. And he was in prison for six months. Why? Because he hired a wealthy London barrister uh, who got him off on a technicality. So then sometimes people look at those situations and they say, where is justice? Remember on Welsh television... You probably watch Scotland today. I watch Wales today. On Wales today, there were these very working-class parents who had lost children, saying, tell him we'll have our day in court. And they did, but they lost. Because justice wasn't seen to be done. They'd lost their children, and the man was in prison for a short time, but managed to siphon away all his money, and now lives in apparent luxury still. So sometimes, if a believer looks at that, certainly unbelievers look at it and say, where is justice? If there's a God, why doesn't he intervene? The arrogant seem to do well. The wicked seem to prosper. Man who's shortchanged. All these children in school. Why didn't God intervene? If he's there, why doesn't he do something? That's the kind of emotion or sense that some people might have in that context. So that's the problem for us here. He's wondering, or he was wondering for a considerable period, clearly, of his life, where is God when the wicked seem to prosper and where often his people seem to struggle and there doesn't seem to be an end to their struggles for years, even decades, and we know from our own experience that some have pains and difficulties and problems until the day that they die. So, inevitably, it's understandable that people would ask, where is justice, Where is God? Why doesn't he intervene? Then the second half of the psalm, he tells us how he came to terms with this and how he came to the conclusion that God is good to Israel. And the basic answer that he finds is in re-understanding, as it were, the character of God. Most problems occur in the Christian life, particularly emotionally, uh, in terms of the senses and how we react at gut level, because of a deficient view of who God is. And uh, that's why it's very important to understand the character and the nature of God. And that's how God helps Asaph in this story. He's reached the end of his tether, as it were, at the end of verse 16, and says, it's oppressive to me. And then you see the turn of the tide in the psalm, and he begins to explain to us four things that he's understood about the character of God, which helps him get perspective. Verse 17, he says, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. The judgment of God is the first point in the turning of Asaph. He understood what was going to happen to the wicked who were seeming to progress. He says, surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. The first part of the answer that God gives to Asaph is, you can trust me in the midst of all this uncertainty because I will judge. Nations rise, leaders rise on the world stage, and then they are brought low. I don't remember that much about my daughter's funeral. It was too emotionally searing. But I do remember the person who was preaching who said this in the middle of the reflection uh, at the, of this, the death of this little girl. He said, some of you here this morning, you're like great oaks. Some of you are ex-rugby players. You're 17 stone. You feel so powerful. This little child was like a daffodil. But just as the daffodils die, the oaks will fall too. And we will all face the judgment of God. Nations and individuals, as Shakespeare said, we strut and fret our hour upon the stage and then we are heard no more. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. Life is but a fleeting shadow. Or as Scripture says, more graphically and succinctly, all men are as grass. So the answer to Rabbi Kushner's notion that God is compassionate but weak is that God's slowness to react or to act in the lives of the ungodly is not because he's weak, not because he's impotent. It's because he's gracious and compassionate even to the ungodly. And he warns them, I will judge you. And in the great scheme of things in eternity, 70 years is not that long. But he is giving them a chance because he's the God of all justice. But throughout the Old Testament, as in Habakkuk and all the other Old Testament prophets, prophets. There's a lot said not about the great and terrible day of the, of the Lord. And what they're essentially saying, many of them, is just you wait. The day is coming. There's a catalog of all these terrible events. You read the, the minor prophets especially. It seems there's one after one. It's like uh, a stream of tsunamis or waves coming onto the beach. And time after time, the, the prophets of the Old Testament says, but just wait. The great and terrible day of the Lord is coming. Who would have thought in the scheme of great nations, for example, that the Soviet Union would fall? It seemed impregnable. Many of us are praying during the 60s and 70s and before, oh Lord, save your people uh, in Russia and the Soviet Union. Bring down that nation which is so, whose Marxist ideology is so hostile to the gospel. And then it was a total shock when it happened so suddenly in October, November 1989. And afterwards, we almost didn't expect it. And yet, that shows how historically nations rise and they fall. Who hears about the Babylonians these days? Or the Assyrians? Or the Medes? Or the Persians? We hear of the small country desolate in Syria today. We hear of Iran. But those great nations, Arnold Toynbee, the great historian of civilization, said there have been 21 great civilizations in the history of the world, and only two or three of them still. Survive today, perhaps the Indian civilization, the Chinese, and uh, the Western civilization, but think of the Roman civilization and the Greeks, how powerful they were, they rose and they were fought they fell in god 's economy, and so do individuals and judgment will come, everything is working to an inexorable historical conclusion, and what we know from the scriptures is that god 's justice and judgment is certain. It's clear and it's public. And that's why there's a stunning verse in the Psalms where David says, listen to this, Rejoice, for the Lord your God will judge with equity. Who rejoices in judgment? Even within our own judicial system, sometimes the law is an us, sometimes judges make mistakes, as in the case of this guy in South Wales. But David says you can rejoice in God's judgment because it's absolutely fair. And don't ask for it to come quickly, but it will come. And even the ungodly, those who are arrogant, those who set their face against God and says, how can God know Uh, or uh, make fun of believers because of their simple trust in God? They will also be judged in due course. So it seems almost a strange thing that the first part of the answer is God will judge and he's a God of justice. Um, but that's not enough in itself to know that a judgment is coming. And it looks as if Asaph wasn't completely uh, satisfied by that, because he still seemed to have a degree of bitterness. Because straight after talking about God's judgment and justice, he says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you in verses 21 and 22. And sometimes we are like that in the midst of difficulties. We kind of lash out. We don't quite know how to deal with it. So we kick out at God or the church or believers thinking, why doesn't somebody do something? Because we, are, we can be prone to bitterness. Mind you, Albert Camus, the famous French philosopher who probably became a believer right at the end of his life through an American Baptist missionary, said, atheism is a bitter cup. I've drunk it to the end. It doesn't really help. Uh, Here, Asaph is embittered still, so God has to reveal three more things to himself about himself quickly before we conclude. And this is the second thing that he reveals, the omnipresence of God. Verse 23, the beginning, yet I am always with you. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven, but you and earth has nothing I desire besides you. Verse 28, but as for me, it is good to be near God. So what comforts off is not just the judgment of God on the unbeliever, but the nearness of God to him as a believer. When there is no one else to go to, he is near for he knows me intimately. If we, even if we take the winds to the ends of the earth, uh, God will be there also. I always remember when I was spending a year on Operation Mobilization before I joined IFES and UCCF. I had an Irish friend who had worked in television. He was a media man. And he went to interview a famous Chinese preacher called Wang Min Dao. And uh, this man was at this point in his mid-80s. He was a great and a gifted evangelist. And at the age of about 55, he was imprisoned for 30 years. At the peak of his ministry. Round about David's age, I suppose. It's like putting David in prison for 30 years. And for some years, he was in, he was in um solitary confinement as well by this time when he was released at 85 he'd virtually lost his voice he never was able to preach again and he was very frail and this friend of mine interviewed him and he got it on tape I got a copy of the interview he said to Wang Dao, when you look back over your life how you were serving the Lord and in full strength in your mid-50s suddenly you were in prison for 30 years sometime in solitary confinement do you ever feel any bitterness towards God And I'll never forget what Wang Dao said. He said, no, for me, my time in prison was a honeymoon with Jesus. Now, if I said that, it would sound glib. This is a man who spent 30 years in prison. And he said those words because he knew the experience of the presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit with him in the prison cell. Or Richard von Brandt. I remember him when I was a student in Oxford, hearing him preach in the town hall, three no- consecutive nights on Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and uh, without using any notes, brilliant, uh, a converted Jewish uh, Baptist pastor in Romania, and uh, to keep himself sane when he was in solitary confinement, he composed 365 sermons, which he memorized based on Bible texts he had known before. And when he was released, he used to preach the sermons to himself in prison. when he was released from prison, he published the sermons, you can probably still get them, entitled, Sermons in Solitary Confinement. And one of them was on the omnipresence of God, the fact that God is present with his people at all times. And in the middle of this sermon, he says, Sometimes I'd be awake at night, I didn't know whether it was two in the afternoon or two in the morning. In my cell, two meters by three meters. And I danced for joy so great was the sense of the presence of God with me, I knew that I was not alone. The presence of God or you know you probably know the story of Mutiny on the Bounty. Well, that group of uh, men who rebelled against uh, uh, a harsh taskmaster, who was the captain of the ship, landed on Pitcairn Island in the South Pacific, and uh, eventually they started fighting amongst themselves and then even killing each other. And uh, it looked as if everything was disintegrating. And then one day, one of their number was walking along the seashore. And some of the wreckage of the, of the ship had come on the seashore, including a chest. And this man, Alex Smith, opened it up. And he read, found inside a Bible. He started to read the Bible, and he was converted. So then, when other ships came later on, they were astonished to find there was a group of believers on the island uh, to the ends of the earth. Uh, even though they were in a place where there was no broader civilization... God had met him in that situation, the omnipresence of God. That's why the Scripture says not even the thickest of darknesses can hide him. One of my favorite Bible verses is 1 Samuel 2.22, where he writes, The Lord will not abandon his people. Why? On account of his own name, on account of his own honor. God doesn't abandon his own people because his own honor is at stake. It's a wonderful verse or Psalm 84 where it says that he can turn a well of weeping into a well of joy. That's why we can cast our problems on a God who is omnipresent. Thirdly and quickly, Asaph recognizes not only the, the judgment of God and the omnipresence of God, but the providential care of God. Verse 23, the second half of the verse, he says, you hold me, by my right hand, in the beginning of the next verse, and you guide me with your counsel. I Always remember as a student listening to Martin Goldsmith, Jewish uh, Christian missionary in East Asia with OMF, speak on that verse, you hold me by my right hand, which is a sign of uh, God's providential care of his children. And he says he was in Singapore when his children were small. He took his little daughter to school one morning, She was only about six, very young, and uh, she had to go up a hill towards the school, and as they reached the bottom of the hill, he said, darling, do you think you can walk up the hill on your own now without me, that last 100 meters? And she said, yes, it's okay, Daddy, because God has said he will hold me by my right hand. So she left her father and walked up the hill with her hand in the air, as if God was holding it, holding her by the right hand. She'd taken that verse very literally. But there is the promise that he will guide us with his counsel. Probably the most brilliant Christian man I have ever met in my life was Professor Sir Norman Anderson. He wrote a brilliant booklet on the evidence for the resurrection, and he was director of the Center of Advanced Legal Studies in Cambridge, professor of law. He spoke Arabic, taught in Alexandria as well. And I had the privilege of speaking on a platform with him in a conference in In England in the early 1990s when he spoke in public for the last time and he was interviewed in front of 2,000 students. Uh, They must have agreed the questions ahead of time because the young curate interviewing him was much more direct than I thought was appropriate. In front of 2,000 students, Norman Anderson was 85 years of age at the time and he turned to him and said, Professor Anderson, you're now 85 years of age, you followed the Lord Jesus Christ for 70 years your wife can no longer recognise you; she has senile dementia. You've had three children; they've all predeceased you. One of them committed suicide, and the other two, uh, it seemed, had some kind of hereditary disease. His son Hugh was in Oxford. And many people thought he'd become prime minister, but died in his twenties. Then he said to him, Professor Anderson, when you think of the fact you've lost all your children, your wife can no longer recognise you, do you ever ask the question, God, why me? I'll never forget his response. Quick as a flash, he said, I never ask the question, why me? I do ask the question, why not me? For I'm not promised as a believer in a broken and a fallen world that these things will not come my way. What I am promised is the grace of God, which he then said is available to me in three ways. The promises of Scripture, the help of the Holy Spirit, and the companionship of God's people, which is the church at its best. The unbeliever is left without those three graces. So the grace of God doesn't eradicate pain in this life, but it ameliorates or reduces its potency because he is providentially caring for us. It was a brilliant answer. And he died a year later. Now has his reward. That's why I love that verse which says, the bruised reed he will not break. The smoking flax he will not quench. Well, time has gone. So the last thing that um, that Asaph discovers is not just that God will execute justice and judgment, and secondly, that God is omnipresent, or thirdly, that he is um, providentially caring for his children, but he is the God of hope. In the prayer we had earlier, there was reference to the God of all grace. There's never a time when God comes to us and says, Sorry you've asked for grace. There's no more left today. It's all used up. It's constantly available. The notion of God as a God of grace is unique to the Bible. I tried to count out all the references to grace in the New Testament. I stopped at 130 recently in a concordance. There were more than 35 in the Old Testament, by the way. So it's not just a New Testament understanding of who God is. But God is not just the God of all grace. He's the God of all hope. And we have a little indicator of that here towards the end of the psalm, where Asaf says in verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me to glory. If you do an assessment of uh, the great philosophers and thinkers of the 21st century, including pa- pagan opponents to the gospel, they really have, where they fall short is, they have no answer to adversity, suffering, and death absolutely none so Richard Dawkins in Oxford just says um, it's blind pitiless DNA some get lucky some don't now you try applying that to to a a friend or a family member who's dying I sat by my mother every day for five days when five months when she had brain cancer and could imagine sitting next to her and saying sorry ma'am some get lucky you it's just blind pitiless DNA you lost out it's useless." Or if you hear the quotations of some great thinkers in the last century before, uh, Bertrand Russell said, when I die, I believe I'll rot. Somerset Maughan said, death is a, a hellish experience. Voltaire, the French philosopher, said, death is a step into the unknown. Hopeless, no, of no pastoral or existential help at all. But compare that with the words of believers across the centuries. Martin Luther King, who died in 1968 at the hands of an assassin. When he's died, his wife said, they've ended my husband's earthly existence with one bullet, but not all the bullets in all the arsenals in all the world can end his eternal existence, for he is with Christ. Or the missionary I knew in Mozambique, Henry, who worked with Mission Aviation Fellowship and flew inland to take resources to missionaries. His plane went down, his single-engine Cessna, and when his wife heard of his death, she said this, classic Christian statement vis-a-vis death. When I heard of my husband Henry's death, my heart broke into a million pieces. That's because believers grieve, though not as the unbeliever. But then she said, But I am comforted by the sure and certain hope that he's in the presence of Christ, whom he loved, whom he served, and with whom he now dwells. Or John Penry, the great Puritan leader in Newport in South Wales, in 1594, the night before he was executed, talking to his wife for the last time. Can you imagine saying this to your wife in your last conversation, just before he was executed the, last, the following morning? He said to her his last words as she was leaving his prison cell, I've been your husband for a season, but because of the gospel, I will be your brother for eternity. Hope because he takes his people to glory. Or my daughter, who has on her gravestone words similar to those which David said after he lost a son. She cannot come to us, but we will go to her because of the hope of glory. That's the kind of God we worship. And that's why we need to be really clear in understanding who God is. The God of judgment, most certainly. But the God who is omnipresent, the God who providentially cares for his people, and the God of all hope. Which is why the psalmist says at the end, he's everything to me. And so should he be to us. That's the answer. When thoughts flood into our minds saying, why is this happening to me? Why do the wicked seem to progress? Wicked nations, wicked individuals, people who rip off the state or whatever. We look around, it's easy to be jaundiced we need to follow the antidote which God gave to Asaph. Trusting that God is a God of judgment. He's slow to act because he's gracious. That he's omnipresent. That he providentially cares for his people. And that he holds out the hope of glory for all those who trust him, strong and weak. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this psalm. And thank you also for the passage from Habakkuk we read earlier, which fits into the theme of trusting in you even when the fig tree doesn't blossom, knowing that in due course, victory will come and you will be seen to be the Lord of history, the Lord of creation, and trusting you, the Lord of our lives. If there are any who are broken, bowed, discouraged, perplexed, struggling here this morning, O God of all hope and all, O God of all grace, fill their minds and senses fresh with the love of the gospel and of your goodness, for we ask it in Christ's name with thanksgiving and praise. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org Thanks for listening.